Yeah, the intervention's good. We'll work with that for now? Yeah, that's fine. All right, cool. All right, I don't know how much of an intro you want to do. I mean, do, do you think we need to start doing more of an intro? In terms of... I mean, I was just going to jump right into my script, but... Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, dude. Like, we'll have to come in... Like, once we've got the name, yeah, then we can probably All right. figure out the intro. But it's coming. Yeah. Okay. Or we can just do these fucking cold opens. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll just start. Okay. Um, so, here we are again. Anyway, uh, as we've said, we're going to jump around a little as we go through. Um, as, and as we go through these, we are going to see different examples of imperialism, right? So, my first one about Botswana is almost a little more theoretical you know it wasn't like the the british weren't you know we going in there framework and, yeah exactly and i'm not going to exactly apply the framework to this because this is almost a century later but this one is a lot more explicit i would say right okay. it's it's a so lot we're more seeing the results it's a lot more framework. in your face yeah. kind of yeah so today I'm going to talk about an event that happened towards the end or the final years of the British Empire. And one article I read called this the event that led to the end of the British Empire. And it, it certainly solidified anti-British sentiment in, in India. Okay. Um, India was seen by many as the jewel of the British Empire. And its importance dates back to the formation of the British East India Company by Royal Charter on December 31st, 1600. And... I am sure we'll cover the East India Company in more than a few podcasts. So that would be like a multi, multi-part. I mean, you can just do isolate. Like, for example, I mentioned here, you know, like in, at one point I'll cover the Great Rebellion of 1857, okay. which happened in India. Right. And that's when sepoys, which were Indian soldiers under British rule, peasants, artisans, and dispossessed landowners, landowners revolted against the company. Mm-hmm. They killed a few Euro- Europeans, and they hampered the company in northern Indi- India. And as you can imagine, and again, as we will cover in another podcast, the British responded ferociously and decisively defeated the rebels in carrying out wanton rep- retribution to teach the natives a lesson in imperial governance. Jesus. That's a quote. <laughs> yeah, I figured. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about the uh, Amritsar massacre, which occurred on the 13th of April, 1919. Okay, so like... Post-World War One, Just, yeah. Just after. So, as you say, like, the date of this is significant because um, it's important to remember that during the First World War, which had ended approximately six months prior, yeah. more than one million Indians had fought for and with the British. Were they conscripted or was it a volunteer? There was support, and I'll get into it a little bit. There was definitely support for the British war effort at first, even amongst... Um, the Indian independence movement. Uh-huh. But as things went on, you know, it changed a little. But it was both because okay. they are conscripted, but I think there were some volunteers. Right. Um, and a, a, approximately 60,000 Indians were killed in the First World War fighting okay. for the British. So this is a thank you for your service. Yeah, exactly. Um, and following the war, pressure for Indian independence from Britain was growing. And, um, you know, Indian independence. And, and the whole movement, I mean, I'll mention Gandhi in this, but, you know, Gandhi and, and, and that whole, it, it deserves its own podcast. It, it deserves a little more thorough look. Than, Absolutely. You know, and kind of into my next point, you know, you and I have discussed, um, and we're just getting started with these, but we, we have, I think, noticed that it is, at least at first, while we're getting used to it, important to keep our episode focus relatively narrow. Um, 
a lot of the things we cover have you know wide-ranging implications and a myriad of influences ongoing simultaneously. Therefore, I probably will not do justice to some of the surrounding events and sprawling topics like Indian independence. Um, and I, you know, I, I kind of think they deserve their own episodes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's <clears throat> it's going to be hard to fully tell an entire complex story um, yeah. in forty five minutes to an hour. So, like, right. I think you know we can do what we are setting out to do in terms of teasing out certain facets. Yeah. Of a story. And um, like you said, you know, we're not historians, so a lot of this is, you yeah, know... We're amateur hacks. Just yeah. Just trying to have some fun. Um, I'm learning as I go along. Yeah. Um, so due to this, I'm going to focus as much as possible on the massacre and the direct events leading up to it and influencing it. But, you know, I will go, you know, th- th- it is important to kind of go into the significance of Amritsar okay. and the area. So Amritsar is a northern city in the Punjab state. Uh, it's about 15 miles east of Pakistan. Uh, it's the largest and viewed as the most important city in Punjab, as it is the major commercial, cultural, and transportation center. The city is the center of Sikhism and holds the Sikhs' principal place of worship, the Harmandar Sahib, I hope, or more easily, the Golden Temple. Okay. It's also known. Let's stick with that. Yeah. So Amritsar was founded in 1577 by Ram Das. He was the fourth guru of the Sikhs. And it was on a site granted by the Mughal Empire, Akbar. And I'll go into Mughals a little bit, just touch on them a little bit later. But Ramdas ordered the excavation of a sacred tank or pool called the Amritasaras, or Pool of Nectar. And this is where the city gets its name from. Okay. And a temple was erected on the island um, by Arjan. He was the fifth guru of the Sikhs. And it was, re- you know, you could reach it by this marble causeway that they built. It's it's spectacular if you if you look it up. During the reign of Maharaja Ranjit Singh, 1801 to 1839, the upper part of the temple was decorated with gold foil, uh, a gold foil covered copper dome. And since then, the building's been known as the Golden Temple. Um, Amritsar became the center of the Sikh faith and uh, as the focus of growing Sikh power. The city experienced a... Um, because it was growing in Sikh power, it, it experienced a corresponding increase in trade. And then it was annexed to the British in, or to British India in 1849. So was it, I'm, I might've missed this, but was it under Mughal rule or was it separate? I mean, it's always, Punjab has always been, you know, predominantly Sikhs. Okay. Uh, but yes, at one point it was, and that's when, and the, the Mughal ruler Akbar gave them this land. Okay. Okay. Um, so Am- Amritsar is not only home to hundreds of thousands of Sikhs, but it's also the chief pilgrimage destination for Sikhs living elsewhere in India and also abroad. The principal focus for the pilgrims is the Golden Temple and its complex of several um, adjacent buildings located around the tank or the pool. So situated on the on the west side facing the causeway to the temple is the Akal Takht, which is the chief center of authority of Sikhism and headquarters of the Supreme Alkali Party, which is the main political party of the Sikhs in the Punjab. Uh, on the north side is the Teja Singh um, Samanduri Hall, which is like a clock tower, and that houses the main office of the Supreme Committee of Temple Management, which oversees the main Sikh um, Gudwaras, which is their places of worship. So this is like... I guess an, an equivalent or an analogous place would be like a Mecca. Yes, okay. yeah, for the Sikhs, yeah. And then to the east of the temple are guest houses for pilgrims. 
a dining hall that provides meals, uh, you know, thousands of meals daily for pilgrims and other visitors. Mm-hmm. And then on the southeast corner is an assembly hall. So, you know, I, I looked up Sikhism just to give like a really brief definition. Um, so it's a progressive religion well ahead of its time when it was founded 500 years ago. Uh, the Sikh religion today has a following over 20 million people worldwide and is ranked as the world's fifth largest religion. Sikhism preaches a message of devotion and remembrance of God at all times, truthful living, equality of mankind, and denounces superstitions and blind rituals. Sikhism is open to all teachings of its ten gurus, and these teachings are enshrined in the Sikh holy book and living guru, the Sri Gura Granth Sahib. Um, another point of interest is you know, during the Great Rebellion of 1857 that I mentioned, many of the Sikhs of the Punjab fought with the British to suppress the rebellion. Okay. And the reason for this was because the rebellion was started by the Purbius Sepoys. Um, again, Sepoys are Indians that fought with the British, but they mutinied. They were Baya and Bihari soldiers of the Bengal army. Uh, the Bengalis had fought with the British to defeat the Sikhs. Uh, in 1849, when it got annexed to Britain, or British India. And therefore, the Sikhs felt no pity for the Bengalis. Also, the figurehead of the Great Rebellion was the Mughal Emperor Bahadur Shah Zafir II. And the Mughals, um, the Mughals are a culture that's kind of a Persio-Islamic blend with uh, regional Indian elements. Mm. Um, they were the historical enemies of the Punjabis. Okay. So, um, so yeah. the British are like, historically playing off these historical animosities and tensions yeah. in the region and things like that, depending on what's most beneficial at the time or where yeah. they're at regionally. So you get, but my next point is, you know, based off that brief summary, it illustrates the many influences India in India and how the British were able to play local rivalries against each other during the various internal Indian wars, such as the Anglo-Sikh, the Anglo-Bengal, and the Anglo-Mughal wars. <laughs> so again, there's whoever they're fighting against, they'll get their other people to help them. I'm sure with promises of different things and, you know, that usually probably didn't deliver. Right. Um, I think this may be a British thing, but I think kind of dismissively when a lot of people think of like a stereotypical Indian man, they're thinking of a Sikh. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's the same here, but like the Destar, which is the turbans that they wear, um, is something that I think in Britain, when people think of Indians, that's what they, the, the, the idea they come up with, which is, I think, again, pretty dismissive. Yeah. Um, well, the women also have bindis, which is the, the dot on the forehead. Okay. Um, but that's also used by Sikhs, Hindus, Jains, Buddhists, and Catholics in India. So it's, and a lot of people, it, I read a little bit about it, and it can, it can indicate marriage, but it can indicate a lot of other things. So, um, I don't want to really, I, I don't know enough about it to go into it. So it's something that's come to India that kind of transcends certain religious yeah, you know, I think so. differences and yeah. things like that, not blanketly. I think but. it's most associated with the Hindus, uh, with that culture. But again, it's it's kind of percolated to all the different areas of India. I just remember um, with res- respect to kind of <clears throat> misidentifying people like in the fucking Islamophobia craze, you know, post 9-11 here. And, you know, that obviously still per- persists to this day. Yeah. You know, I think... There was a few instances of folks kind of, you know, taking out aggression against Islamic people on Sikhs just because, again, there's that ignorance. Not that any aggression is okay and things like that, but, like, it's just so 
ignorant you know, I mean, of, of other cultures and things like that. Like, yeah. oh, I see someone with a turban. It must be, you know, right. someone that was involved with bombing the, you know, the World Trade Center. It's like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Well, I get into a little bit about, you know, kind of comparisons with modern day in, in a little yeah. while. But, yeah. Um, so that's some of the history and culture um, kind of get into the events leading up to the Emirates Star Massacre. So... In 1915, the Governor General of India, Lord Harding, again, a man on the ground, enacted the Defense of India Act, or the Defense of Indian Regulations Act. So that's the official name. This was an emergency criminal law. Britain used the threat of German influences in India and the threat of of an alliance between the Central Powers and Afghanistan as justification of this act, but in reality, it was designed to curtail the nationalist and revolutionary activities of the Indian independence movement. Okay. So So, the specter of the Kaiser was kind of utilized to suppress national liberation stuff? Yeah, I mean, there was, they had some information to back it up, which I'll get into, but it was definitely just to suppress, you know, to, to protect the British interests in India. Yeah. I don't want to bury the lead on you a little bit, but was was there an organized, like a, a large organized movement at this point in terms of um, national liberation? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And, and again, we'll get it. Okay. I'll get into kind of and the Sikhs are pretty predominant in that. OK. Yeah. So initially, the British had the support of the political leadership of the Indian independence struggle during the onset of World War One. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, over one million Indians had fought with the British and a further 300,000 had served as laborers in Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. However, as the war went on, grain prices in India rose. Um, there was massive dissatisfaction with British immigration policies, and rumors of British defeats in the war uh, led to unrest against the British. So um, it's important to note that, as briefly mentioned, despite the massive support of the Indians during the war, the British were reluctant to allow the immigration of Indians into Britain. Keep Britain white. Um, And this is kind of where I draw parallels. So, you know, we see similar policies on both sides of the Atlantic today with various conflicts. You know, I live here like you. um, So I'm kind of more in tune in what's going on here. But off the top of my head, you can think of South American immigrants fleeing from issues predominantly created by by the U.S. um, And still half the country wants to build a wall to keep them out. Yeah. There's no understanding of of why they're fleeing their countries. Yeah, when you destabilize an entire region for, you know, 30 years by backing right-wing coups and death squads. Yeah. And then you're surprised that people people want to leave. leave. Yeah. And then, again, you know, the debacle in Afghanistan. And we still, you know, I I think it was pretty obvious there was a reluctance to accept refugees, even while being critical of what happened. That's yeah, and that's insane to me, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's just such. I heard a lot of fake pity and remorse coming from the right, and it was really just because it was an opportunity to criticize Biden, which I love to do. I just like yeah. to come at it from a very different end of the spectrum, yes. right? But like, okay, so you know, you're complaining about all this going on. Are are you willing to take in the refugees? No. They're not. Yeah. Not from the right. <laughs> and I mean, it also goes back to, you know, um, when the Jewish were fleeing Nazism, almost no country were willing to accept them. The, Absolutely The not. U.S. turned them away. Britain turned them away. It, so, you know, we like to be seen as this bastion of freedom and everything else. But I've, Only for it, certain it, people. Exactly. Yeah. So 
back to India. Um, early in the war, uh, British intelligence in the U.S. reported that the Ghadar Party, I, 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 I'm probably saying that wrong, but, but this was an expat Punjabi party um, of Sikhs formed to overthrow British rule. And they were working with the Germans and the Indian Revolutionary Underground to send men and arms from the U.S. and East Asia to India to start a mutiny against the British Army. Mm-hmm. So there was some intelligence there. Yeah. To, but again, we'll get kind of more into the war, to the act, and it was ridiculous. Yeah. Um, in August 1914, a large number of Sikhs began leaving Canada and the U.S. to ignite this mutiny under Ghadar leadership. And at the same time, nationalist crime was also increasing in Bengal. Okay. Um, due to this, the British felt, the need, felt they needed emergency powers and enacted the Defense of India Act to last for the duration of the war plus six months to ensure public safety and the defense of British India. The main object of the law made it illegal to communicate with the enemy, obtaining information, spreading false reports, as well as any activities the government saw prejudicial to the war effort. Mm-hmm. So, the act allowed local governments to make rules to detain offenders indefinitely and without representation, to try by special tribunals um, persons who were reasonably suspected of being of hostile origin or acting in a manner prejudicial to the safety of the empire, committing or conspiring to commit crimes described in the act um, could be punishable by death, transportation, read, uh, deportation. Um, uh, or a seven-year imprisonment. I mean, this just sounds like post-9-11. Yeah. Like, honestly, like... Yeah, it's like the first Patriot Act. <laughs> yeah, the Patriot Act. <laughs> yeah. Like, sending people to, you know, Guantanamo Bay and shit like that. Yeah. I mean, it's just, like, so amazing. And I, I like... But the extent to which an imperial power or the ruling, the ruling party or whatever it is will take advantage of crisis. Mm-hmm. You know... <laughs> Yeah. And I think that's another theme that we should hone in on as well, like the kind of environments that crisis breeds and the opportunities that are created for, you know, an imperial power to, you know, achieve what they want under certain pretenses, I think, which is what you're getting at here. Yeah. So the act gave powers to local government to appoint three commissioners for trials uh, who may be below the status of high court judges. So high court judges would be, you know, a federal judge, I think, would be the closest thing to hear. Um, and then, so at least two would be Sessions judges or additional session, Sessions judges for at least three years. So they had to have some experience. But again, these are pretty junior mm-hmm. um, people that are, you know, trying to enact these laws. Um They had to be qualified for appointment as judges of a high court or advocates of a chief court or... Um, prosecutors of 10 years standing um, and a majority verdict was acceptable so the the act allowed the commissioners to accept as evidence statements recorded by a magistrate without scrutiny or cross or cross-examination and superseded the standards of evidence prescribed in the indian evidence act of 1872 i don't know enough about that act but again they're just like we don't really need proof we can kind of some guy told me something therefore i'm going to act on it it's like emergency powers. Mm-hmm. It sounds very sinister in the context of what we're talking about now. Yeah. And certainly will be weaponized. Yes. Further, the act allowed commissioners to accept such recorded evidence where the witnesses were unavailable or dead. Oh, my God. Yeah. 
So this measure, they, they claimed, was intended to secure and safeguard against an intimidation and assassination by revolutionaries of witnesses. There was no right to trial by jury. Uh, the act excluded from appeal or judicial review the decisions of the commissioners appointed under the Defense of India Act. So, you, you know, if, if they made a decision, that was it. Um, although designed to maintain order and, or, and curtail revolutionary movement, the law was in practice used in widespread scale from limiting revolutionaries through arresting perpetrators of religious violence to curtailing the voice of moderate political leaders. Um, initially, the law was actually accepted as there was still support for the British war effort. However, the widespread application against even moderate leaders led to opposition by the Indian population. Yeah, so they basically had support and then they abused it and they, yes. lost, they exactly, lost the support. Yeah. So... In Bengal and Punjab, this law led to 46 executions and 64 life sentences for revolutionaries. By the end of the war, there were over 800 Indians interned in Bengal alone. So, yeah, they used it pretty, uh, pretty, pretty widespread. Yeah. Um, okay, so a little further down the line, you know, following the Defense of India Act, the British government commissioned the Montague Chelmsford Report. This was a set of recommendations made to the British Parliament in 1918 that became the theoretical basis for the Government of India Act of 1919, which was then again kind of superseded by another act that I'll get into. Um, the report was the result of lengthy deliberations between Edwin Samuel, Edwin Samuel Montague, the Secretary of State for India from 1917 to 1922, and Lord Chelmsford, the Viceroy of India from 1916 to 1921. And a viceroy is a ruler who can exercise authority in a colony on behalf of the sovereign nation. Okay. So he's a British guy that can just do what he wants there, almost. Do you know anything about um, those two guys kind of outlook? I didn't look a lot into them, but I mean, based on their findings, they were, they were pretty reasonable. Okay. So, and I'll kind of go into that now. So in August 1917, Montague had informed the House of Commons that the policy of the British government toward India was thereafter to be one of, quote, increasing association of Indians in every branch of the administration with a view to the progressive realization of responsible government in India as an integral part of the empire. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, rooted in, you know, racism. So good intentions. Shit, but, you know, I mean, I mean in, better in, intentions that the they had. hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. Yeah. So soon afterward, Mont soon afterward, Montague headed a delegation that spent this, the winter of 1917 to 1918 in India, um, during which he held discussions with Chelmsford. And the main element of the report was a recommendation that control over some aspects of provincial government be passed to Indian ministers responsible to an Indian electorate. Okay. So it seems that this report recognized the harshness of the Defense of India Act and saw the need to scale back the emergency powers, in part to compromise and also to quell the discontent of the revolutionaries. So in theory, at this point, we're in a pretty promising position. Right. However, despite the suggestions of the Montague Chelmsford Report, the most significant piece of legislation that was passed was the Rowlett Act, which was made law on the 18th of March, 1919. The formal name of this act was the Anarchical and Revolutionary Crimes Act of 1919. <laughs> oh, no. This act had immense influence on the independence movement. So some quote-unquote highlights of the Rowlett Act. Anyone suspected of terrorist activities could be arrested and detained for up to two years without trial. Trials be, could be conducted without a jury for forbidden political acts. Police could detain people without citing a reason. 
Police could conduct a search without a warrant, and the press was censored. Okay, so we had two guys on the ground saying, hey, we might want to ease up on this. Like, shit is starting to kind of boil up. People are getting agitated even more so. So, like, let's like, scale that back. And yeah. they're like, nope, let's turn yeah, it up to 11. That. Let's go crazy. <laughs> so within India, this was known as the Black Act and enraged the nation. This led directly to the Rowlet... Okay, I'm going to butcher this word. Satyagraha. Um, which was called for by Mahatma Gandhi. So a satragraha is a determined but nonviolent resistance to evil. Mm -hmm. According to the philosophy behind satragrahas, satragrahis, who are practitioners of satragraha, I'm going to say that word so many times and never get it, achieve correct insight into the real nature of an evil situation by observing a nonviolence of the mind, by seeking truth in a spirit of peace and love, and by undergoing a rigorous process of self-scrutiny. In doing so, the Satragrahi encounters truth in the absolute. By refusing to submit to the wrong or to cooperate with it in any way, the Satragrahi asserts the truth. Throughout the confrontation with evil, the Satragrahi must adhere to nonviolence, for to employ violence would be to, lo to lose correct insight. Okay. So basically read spiritual peaceful protest. Right. Is this, is this Gandhi's kind of like entree onto the scene in terms of... I mean, he's of, been active, but this is active. what, like, kind of really... This and what happens after is what solidifies his... Um, although he's considered somewhat of a moderate because of his peacefulness, but this solidifies his, his role in the independence, okay. definitely. Yeah. Okay. So the Rowlet Satragraha included Gandhi proposing a hartal, which was a day of fasting, prayer, and the abstention of any physical labor so effectively a general strike mm -hmm. the yeah. response was overwhelming on april 6 1919 millions of indians simply didn't go to work and for 24 hours agonizing hours for the british india simply ground to a halt that's awesome yeah we should we should learn from that yeah exactly i mean there's you know People always make fun of the French for all their strikes, but, you know, they work and people... <laughs> and they've got a lot of friggin' vacation days. Yeah. They, yeah. they do have that. Yeah. And no, then they get... I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm trivializing it, but yeah. you're absolutely right. I mean, that's, yeah. that could be a very powerful thing to get what we want. Yeah. So as well as this, Gandhi and his followers, in protest of a salt tax that was levied by the British Empire, began a salt march which ended with Gandhi manufacturing salt from seawater and breaking the British law establishing a monopoly on salt manufacture. They had marched for 240 miles for 24 days. Gandhi led the march from Sabarmati Ashram to the coastal village of, of Dandi, which is now Gujarat. And after making the salt at Dandi, Gandhi continued walking southward along the coast, making salt and addressing meetings along the way. So... You know, this is Gandhi being peaceful, but, you know, obviously breaking British law. Mm -hmm. So following the Rowlett Act, there was obviously a number of arrests, the most influential of which with regards to Amritsar and the massacre that happened were the arrests of Dr. Safuddin Kichlu and Dr. Satya Pal. These men were seen as great symbols of Hindu-Muslim unity in the short time after the Rowlett Acts. Um, and, you know, it was kind of said... And, you know, I don't know if this is conjecture, but it was said that these two unified their people so much that Hindus and Muslims were seen drinking water from the same glass. Okay. So 
So but, is it like, sorry, um, but these these figures are trying to unify India against Britain or British rule? Yes. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, you can see why they were arrested then. Yeah. Well, on, <laughs> on, on April 9th, 1919, a procession was taken out by the people of Amritsar in protest of the act. In response, the British government ordered the arrest of Kitchlu and Sachipal. Um, their, the news of their arrest evoked strong reaction among the people of Amritsar. On April 10th, 1919, disorder broke out, resulting in the sack of bank buildings and destruction of telegraph lines and railway communications. The doctors were interned in Dharmsala. And then, you know, I read a lot of different articles on this. And in some publications, it said that, you know, there were murders of, of Europeans and the death of a female English um, missionary. But again, some said that, some didn't. So there's a lot of, this is a long time ago, and there's a lot of um, bias when you read different things. But, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm sure there were things happened, but the reaction, which we'll get into now, was a little... Uh, well, yeah, and it's like, it's a tragedy when things like that happen, right? Yeah. Obviously, but like, all right, that stuff like that is usually centered so much like in the West to like gin up rage and support for things like that yeah. while completely ignoring like the violence that was visited on, you know, in utilizing the powers of the actor talking about the violence that was, you know, inflicted upon thousands of Indian people. Right. Right. Yes. But like, you know, you take one white girl and again, as horrible as that is. And then suddenly it's like, we, we need better. to go to fucking war, yeah. <laughs> you know? So, Due to, you know, Gandhi's actions and the, you know, what was happening in Amritsar, the British banned all political meetings and any gatherings in Amritsar and sent General, General Reginald Edward Harry Dwyer, or Dyer, Dyer, sorry, on the 13th of April to re regain and maintain order in Amritsar and to prevent another great rebellion. So that's what they're worried about, right? Yeah. They're worried about these great rebellions and, and, you know, that, so they want to stop it, you know, as soon as possible. I have a feeling shit's going to start getting bad now. Yeah. So, um, Jalin Wallabog is a Walden park or public space in Amritsar. When Dyer reached the area, he found a group, group of approximately 20,000 people who he assumed were all bloodthirsty protesters. Mm -hmm. Dyer had 90 men and two armored cars. The men were made up of British army and Gurkhas, which are British fighters from Nepal. Within 30 seconds, he ordered his men to open fire. Oh, my God. So this is a quote from a, from a witness. Shots were fired into the thick of the meeting. There was not a corner left of the garden facing the firing line where people did not die in large numbers. Many got trampled under the feet of the rushing crowds and thus lost their lives. Blood was pouring in profusion. Even those who lay flat on the ground were shot. As I saw the Gurkhas kneel down and fire, as soon as the firing stopped, the troops and officers all cleared away. End quote. So 30 seconds. Within 30 seconds, he ordered them to fire on these people. That are essentially. Well, I mean, he thinks caged, they're protesters, but, like, but yes, they can't get out. They're walled in. From what I was reading, there's, <clears throat> it's this big public space that's almost like a park. Mm -hmm. And then there's walls and houses and everything. So it's completely enclosed and there's a door to get in. Luckily, there's a door. We'll I mean, get into that in a second. The nature of the whole thing, just again, given the location that it's in, sounds like it's inherently kind of peaceful. I mean, if it's a park, like it's not like, yeah. you know, as and I'm, I'm fine with destroying shit to make a point and stuff like that. Oh, these, they, they, like weren't, this, they were just gathering. Yeah, so, no, I'll, 100%. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. 
So the shooting lasted for 10 to 15 minutes. By the time it stopped, Jalanwalabagh was littered with bodies of dead and dying. Although the authorities were never to concede that more than 379 people were killed, a more realistic would, uh, assessment would suggest the death toll was between five and 600. And I've read a lot of things that said it was over 1,000. I could imagine. And then the, wound, the wounded amounted to three times as many as that. The crowd were not protesters or revolutionaries. They were peaceful, unarmed Indians who had come to Jalanwalabagh to celebrate the festival of Bishaki and to listen to speeches. Many had come from the country and were completely unaware of the order bannering, banning gatherings. Oh, so this had nothing to even... No, these were just... This was not a political act at all. No. Or... Oh, wow. Others had come just to spend a few hours in the park. There were men, women, children, Hindus, Sikhs, and Muslims. So... This is kind of after this, and, and this is when, it, you know, obviously that's a terrible event, and I don't really know what else you could say about it. This guy went in there, and, oh. you know. I mean, it would be just as disgusting if it was a political movement. I don't want to, I don't want to say that. Just no. To come, you know what I mean? Yeah, if yeah. it was a peaceful political protest, but, man, the fact that, like. I mean, there were definitely political speeches going on there, but they were sure. just, it was just part of the festival. That's what happened at this right. festival. Uh. So. When later called upon to justify his actions, Dyer characterized the situation in Amritsar as a military operation, one with a punitive logic all its own. This is a quote. I fired and continued to fire until the crowd dispersed, and I consider this the least amount of firing which would produce the necessary moral and widespread effect it was my duty to produce if I was to justify my action. If more troops had been at hand, the casualties would be greater in proportion. It was no longer a question of merely dispersing the crowd, but one of producing a sufficient moral effect from a military point of view, not only on those who were present, but more especially throughout the Punjab. There could be no question of undue severity. End quote. He also stated, if he had been able to get his armored cars through the doors of Jawalanbagh, he would have used them on the crowd. So he was just going in to kill people to make a point. Yeah. Yes. Like it didn't matter what it was about. We're just going to let some blood flow to make a point. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple quotes coming up that oh are my God. kind of, uh, yeah. Was this guy hung? Probably not. No. no. <laughs> Probably went back to some cushy job in Parliament or some shit like that. Uh, I, I mentioned what happens to him. <laughs> <laughs> so details of the massacre and of Dyer's justification only emerged months later, but caused irreparable damage to the relationship between moderate Indian nationalists, including Gandhi, and the do, British do government. Pe- do you want people to get radicalized? Because this is how yeah. people get radicalized. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, you know, through his statement, you see, he's making a point that I'm going to, again, using that quote from earlier, like teach these natives about imperial government, but really, you're just making them hardlined. Although many colonial officials and conservatives rallied to Dyer's defense, the general was forced to retire from the army with the government officially denouncing his actions of 1920. However, he was given a sword engraved Savior of Punjab, and the public raised £26,000 for his retirement. Cool. During a debate in the House of Commons, then-Secretary of War Winston Churchill famously described what happened at Jawalanbagh as, quote, an episode which appears to, to me to be without precedent or parallel in the modern history of the British Empire. It is an event of entirely different order from any of those 
tragical events which take place when troops are brought into collision with civil population. It is an extraordinary event, a monstrous event, an event which stands in singular and sinister isolation. Mm. So Churchill's saying, this isn't how we do it. This is this was just a singular thing, and I, this dire guy he screwed up. I call bullshit on Winnie. Yeah, and we're, so we we have a lot of work to do in terms of Churchill. Know, redressing the, I think, general conception of Churchill as a, a hero. Yeah, well, I'll say something here now. I'm just talking about in future episodes. Uh, yeah. As well. Oh yeah. So Dyer, in other words, was singled out as a bad apple, and the massacre itself portrayed and as an, as an aberration within an otherwise benign imperial project. Considering that Churchill, <coughs> excuse me, just a few months later, initiated the indiscriminate policy of brutal reprisals for IRA attacks in Ireland and oversaw the violent suppression of unrest elsewhere in the empire, the speech was blatantly disingenuous. 100%. It was also, objectively speaking, wrong. Dyer's actions at Jallanwalabagh on April 13th, 19, April 13th, 1999, were not without precedent, and nor were they foreign to the British way of doing things, as Churchill asserted. I mean, it wasn't foreign to India. I mean, yeah, <laughs> look at right. what happened in the Bengal region, you know, probably 50, 60 years prior and things like that with the uh, the East India Company and stuff. Like, the, <laughs> you're right. Yeah. yeah. So, at Amrit Star in April 1919, Dyer had simply followed the example of previous colonial conflicts, which had resorted to exemplary and indiscriminate violence when faced with rebellion and anti-colonial unrest. When justifying the mass slaughter of sepoys in 1857 during the Great Rebellion, Frederick Cooper described such violence as necessary, quote, to show publicly in the eyes of all men that at, at all events, the Punjab authorities adhered to the policy of overawing by a prompt and stern initiative, the only way to strike terror into a semi-barbarous people, and to the last would brook nothing short of absolute active and positive loyalty. Given that these words were almost exactly the same as the ones Dyer spoke in his defense, it's hard not to conclude that what happened at Jalanwindenbag <clears throat> was in many ways predictable. It's not an isolated event. Well, Amritsar is not an isolated event, Labour MP Benjamin Spohr noted in 1920, any more that General Dyer is an isolated officer. So you do have some recognition. Absolutely. I mean, look, you know, when we talked last week, and I don't know when people listen to this, but, you know, we'll have an episode on the Philippines in two-parter and we talked about, you know, how the generals, the guys on the ground, you know, when it's, when it's time and the, the kind of wording that comes down from on high that, you know, shots are justified. That's what happens, yeah. you know? And like you mentioned this word benign imperial project. I think like part of what we're doing here is to show that it's there's a, nothing benign about imperialism. Yeah. It's inherently violent. Yeah. So just the last part, Dyer's actions at Jalinwalabag did not reflect commonly, or sorry, did reflect commonly held sentiments among the British officers involved in the suppression of the disturbances in 1919. Following the unrest in, colonial, in the colonial capital that, that same year, and I'll close with this quote by Brigadier General Drake Brockman, what a name, <clears throat> composed as the crowd was of the scum of Delhi City, I am of firm opinion that if they, if they had got a bit more firing given them, it would have done them a world of good, and their attitude would be much more amenable and respectful, as force is the only thing that an Asiatic has any respect for. That was in the same. That was in 1919 as well, but in Delhi. 
and I'm sure we'll get into that in a later podcast. I mean, I don't know. If this was a visual medium, I mean, you, everyone could see my face. Yeah. I'm just my eyes are big, and it's just you know, pretty depressing. Yeah, but I think you know, you're right. Like this is obviously a horrible incident, but there's many like it, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, like, it's just an inherent part. Like I mentioned, it's an inherent part of any imperial project, violent suppression, because you know what? People don't want to be dominated. People can rule themselves. They know what's best for, you know, their own people, things like that. Yeah. We don't need to go and enlighten them with bullets. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, as I think about this, it I don't know how much a story like this kind of adds to our project of what we're doing here because it's just so reprehensible that it's easy. You know, I think we're trying to show some of the more insidious natures of imperialism. And again, anybody can read that and go like, oh man, that's terrible. That That was really shitty. But it's the more subtle things that these imperial powers do that I think we want to draw draw out more and and show people. But um, I, I I think it's it's still important that people know that you know it was this explicit at times. Well, I think what's important is because you know if you read like a Wikipedia article and you see oh three hundred and twenty nine people dead, you know three seventy nine yeah or yeah, yeah. three seventy nine as kind of like the reported statistic. It's easy to kind of just like you know, to your point, recognize, obviously, oh, that's that's horrible and things like that. But in that story, I think you teased out again, some of the attitude and thinking and the entire construction of an imperial project that kind of can lead to an event like that. You know what I mean? Because you can just read it simply on a page. And I don't think it has the same effect when you actually get quotes from people yeah. and hear what they think. You know? well, I mean, you can even go to, you know, 2019 was obviously the 100 year anniversary of this. Mm-hmm. And you know the British government's never really apologized, and they still won't recognize more than the than the, the what they claim is three hundred and seventy nine people. And I think Theresa May made a statement, and it but it wasn't an apology, or you know it it was just a that was an aggr- a regretful thing that happened, just like a recognition of yeah. like the bare minimum. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, you know, and and some of the other things I've been reading recently, that, that there seems to be a lot of that. You know, that mm-hmm. there's a certainly among the conservatives in Britain, there's a reluctance to apologize for the empire. Sure. But I think, you know, what's critical about it is like you mentioned it off the top that India was the quote unquote crown jewel Yeah. for, you know, a lot of commercial reasons, you know, political geopolitical reasons and things like that. Mm-hmm. So like, this is just like an, an example of, I think the lengths that, the government would be willing to go to maintain that jewel, you know, because, mm. you know, like you said, there was, there were figures that I think were probably perceived as da- like especially dangerous because they were seen as unifiers, right? Yeah. Like, like the, the two doctors that were arrested and things like that. Yeah. So, I mean, as soon as powerful classes and governments, I think, recognize that, that's when I think they get nervous. I mean, look at someone like Fred Hampton. Yeah. Right? Not that this is the same thing, but just I think when you start to see figures or movements that can actually start uniting people against the bigger enemy. Yeah. That's what Yeah, I mean, and who knows what, you know, Malcolm X would have done. A lot of these guys. Um, 
yeah, I, I think I was reading something that you know everybody remembers Martin Luther King obviously for good reason, but Malcolm X may have done more if he'd uh, if he if he hadn't been killed. Yeah, and I mean people just and for that matter, people whitewash someone like Dr. King as well. Yes, you know he like you, if you go back and look at some of the propaganda, I looked. Look, my wife and I were looking at um, some old photos and like just newspaper click clippings especially in the context of like the BLM movements last year. And there was kind of like a political cartoon kind of thing with Dr. King's like face and like burning buildings behind. So yeah. like, you know, the perception now is very different than what it was then because he probably was recognized correctly as someone that was dangerous to the existing order of things. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. So now it's safe to rehabilitate figures like that. Yeah, but not we're getting far afield from what we're talking about. But yeah, you know, it's uh, it's all kind of related. <laughs> and that's going to become more obvious as we go on. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, thanks, Steve. Yeah, that was it's another depressing. One, yeah. <laughs> see ya. Yep. See ya.